Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Brooks Long to discuss Smokey Robinson's autobiography co-written with David Ritz. Email us at LetItRollPodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and once again, I'm joined by Brooks Long to continue our David Ritz Book Club. This week, we're looking at Smokey, Inside My Life, co-written with the great Smokey Robinson. Brooks, welcome back. Great. Glad to be back. These are a lot of fun, and uh, I love Smokey, so... I do too. And this one, I have to say, Smokey has some hard times. There is a little bit of drug problem, but it's much, much less depressing than Marvin or Etta. Oh, yeah. quite, a, quite a bit. Yeah. Um, he's, he's got his, his, uh, his demons for sure. But uh, I guess kind of like his, um, uh, his music, his uh, his way of speaking, which I think Ritz characterizes really well, um, is just so light, and there's like a depth that's also light at the same time. Uh, a quiet storm, as it were. A quiet storm, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Forgive us, audience. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't resist that one. So. This one came out in 1989, um, and you know the cover of the copy I have, you know, has the People magazine imprimatur, the best pop autobiography in recent memory. To me, it's a little bit more aimed at a pop audience than a lot of Ritz's other books. You think that's a fair characterization? I think that's a fair characterization of the book. I think that's a fair characterization of Smokey, and that's okay. Indeed. Yeah, yeah indeed. I mean, and in Smokey's case, often that's great. So yeah. let's. And we have to remember, sorry, we have to remember that at this point in the late 80s, Smokey was still having hits. Like he wasn't done. He he was on his, I don't think he had too many hits uh, after this point, but, uh, you know, throughout the 80s, he, he kept having sizable hits. He was still relevant. So, you know, it's different from... Uh, in Etta James or um, Marvin Gaye who died before the book came out or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And Smokey's rocking a pretty tight jerry curl on the uh, yes, copy I have. So he could have been right there <laughs> on NWA and the Posse with uh, the Arabian <laughs> Prince. <laughs> and, and looking pretty young, you know, uh, so, so still, still an active guy. Although as he comes clean within the book, he struggled with some cocaine addiction in the 80s, which is one of those things. It's kind of reminds me of like when Charlie Watts of the Rolling Stones had his struggles in middle age. Just kind of out of left field for somebody who's had it together through fame and fortune. But it seems like, you know, 
if you're out there long enough, the, the, the lifestyle is going to catch up with you. For sure, for sure. And if you're dabbling a little bit and all of a sudden this new thing comes along, ah, uh, well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that crack epidemic. The CIA yeah. wasn't kidding around with that one. But no, they were not. <laughs> Smokey survived that and, and, and bounced back pretty well. He's I, Last I saw him was in that documentary a couple years ago, him and Barry Gordy still palling around uh, like best friends. So, so all's well that ends well. And I want to focus mostly on the early days and and the the 60s when Smokey did the body of his incredible the the bulk of his incredible body of work. But let's start with his background. And you know, um, once again, Smokey's born and raised in Detroit, but his parents are both part of the Great Migration. His father was from Mississippi by way of Cleveland, met his mother in Detroit. His, his that's William Five Robinson, his his dad. Um, Smokey's also William Robinson. His mom, Flossie Robinson, was from Memphis by way of St. Louis before she got to Detroit. Um, and both of his parents, you know, had struggles. And like so many in the series, his mother passed away at age 43 when Smokey was just 10. So that was tough. But Smokey had a big extended family that circled the wagons around him. And it seems like he had a pretty solid grounding in family. Yeah, uh, he had a really um, tight upbringing. It seems like um, nobody was, you know, it it, it wasn't like uh, the squeaky clean family, but they were all uh, really tight together. And he was tight with everybody in his community in Detroit, too. Yeah, absolutely, including the Franklins, uh, who um, his uh, Cecil Franklin was one of his friends growing up. That's Aretha Franklin's brother. And so he knew Aretha Franklin from way back. And yeah, even though his parents divorced when he was three and his dad sounds like struggled with alcoholism, and it sounds like his dad uh, was a little violent, but not with Smokey. And it was interesting. After his mother passed away, Smokey's first 10 years, most of that's just him and his mom. After his mother passed away, his older sisters moved back in the house, and his dad moves back in the house with another one of his mom's exes. They're living like in an attic apartment there, but but it gives a vibe of just a, a big, healthy, hearty, extended family that circled the wagons and took care of little Smokey and saw him through. And also was providing this musical education. And, and his mom was a key part of that. She was into swing, Sarah Vaughn, Nat King Cole, Billy Holiday, Billy Eckstein. You can definitely hear that in Smokey's music. Also the gospel, the gospel stuff by the blind boys, mighty clouds of joy. He knew Clara Ward personally, seen her down at the Franklin's house and seen her, seen her perform in church. He was also big on cowboy songs. He loved K star. Uh, he loved your hit parade, which was, I mean, when Smokey was coming up in the early 50s, that is the whitest of white pop <laughs> ever, you know. So he's getting a really well-rounded musical education, and you can hear it in his music as he grows up. Yeah, and I, I just have to have to stress that over and over and over and over again, this generation of R&B and soul singers love country music or country music or at this time cowboy uh uh, country and western stuff some of the more you know pop things like uh, gene autry or or rory rogers or something like that but it's all you know sort of circling around the same culture and it's 
it's something that uh, seems like remarkable when we talk about Ray Charles, but it was just everybody was listening to that stuff. Yeah, it was on the radio. It was out there. And, you know, as Charlie Parker said, as he legendarily fed quarters in the jukebox, listen to the stories, man. Listen to the stories. Yeah. In that country music. But let's go ahead and hear our first song. This is um, Smokey Robinson, The Miracles. It's not their first hit. This is, I'll say, the kind of the mature flowering of the art of Smokey Robinson. This is a song that John Lennon covered with the Beatles. You really got a hold on me. Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, You Really Got a Hold on Me from 62 or 63, I think 63, just primo mature um, Smokey Robinson. And this this is the Smokey Robinson that had Bob Dylan and John Lennon and everybody crowning him the poet laureate of rock and roll at that point. And it's hard to argue. Um, Smokey had a lot of musical collaborators, but as a lyricist, he's Smokey. He's kind of the king. Yeah, there's... There is uh, just a strain of American pop music that, not that it's 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 not using different poetic techniques and things like that, but there's just something about uh, you know deeply felt feelings rhymed <laughs> together, yep. just deeply felt feelings rhymed together, and you can hear that uh, throughout you know even, especially today. I mean, you know, that approach might be bigger today than it, than maybe it's ever been since the 50s. But uh, you can hear that certainly in the Beatles. Like I'm thinking of something like in my life is, you yep. know, it's not happiness is a warm gun. It's it's as close as something like, uh, you know, shop around or, uh, you know, you really got a hold on me as anything. Yep, and that wordplay, I think that, that Smokey's gift for wordplay um, is what drew people like Dylan and Lennon to him. Just really clever. I think he's maybe the most clever American songwriter since Cole Porter. Um, and it's hard to think of, I mean, I think you'd have to get into hip-hop to, to, to get to somebody else that's as lyrically clever as Smokey. But let's get back to his origin story, because we talked about the music he listened to as a really little guy. But then when he's a teenager... The first wave of rock and roll comes along. One of his favorites is Clyde McFadder. He first heard Clyde when Clyde was with Billy Ward and the Dominoes. And Clyde meant a lot to Smokey because he was singing that high tenor that Smokey becomes famous for. Nolan Strong and the Diablos on Fortune Records out of Detroit was another one. And, you know, Nolan Strong is somebody that if you weren't in Detroit, you probably weren't hearing as much. But if you were in Detroit, you were hearing Nolan Strong. He loved Sam Cooke, of course. Frankie Lyman was another big influence. He loved all the doo-wop groups. Um, Harvey Fuqua's Moonglows, The Dells, Sonny Till and the Orioles, Flamingos, all that stuff. Really hard to escape and forms his own doo-wop groups at a pretty young age. First of the Five Chimes. Uh, and then he, he goes through and he mentions like all the five chimes and pretty much every single one of those guys, except for his buddy, Pete Moore, ends up getting replaced by somebody else until you get the Matadors, 
which has got Pete Moore, Sonny Rogers, Bobby Rogers, and Ronnie White, which is almost the miracles. Yeah, you can tell that uh, that's you know the constant is Smokey. <laughs> so <laughs> yep. uh, you you can tell that uh, Smokey at a young age was really going for it. Um, it it um, and it, it's it really makes a lot of sense. The, the, uh, the doo-wop thing, they were catching the tail end of that stuff. Clyde McFadder was just really big for all of that. But something that's really interesting that he says later on in the book about his voice is that he's not a falsetto singer. Um, he, he's singing in his natural range, which I think is true. When you listen to him speak, it's, you know, the same, yeah. uh, the same high range. So I, I think about that in in uh, his his voice. It's not like Curtis Mayfield or Prince, who actually have deep voices. Um, it, it, his his sound is a little more more natural. Not you know nothing to say anything against any of those other folks. Yeah, and and I think Michael Jackson might be a point of comparison there. He also had a high speaking voice and. and when you're singing in your natural range, there's just a lot more warmth and, and a lot more, um, the timbre is just richer than, than if you're doing a Frankie Valley, uh, or John Lennon was somebody who did a lot of falsetto and, and yeah. it's kind of a harsher sound. Um, yeah. And Frankie Lyman, I don't think was in that category, but definitely McFadder. And I think Nolan strong too, but there's another guy in Detroit who's a big, makes a big impression on Smokey. And that's the guy who replaced Clyde McFadder in the dominoes. I'm talking about the great Jackie Wilson, of yeah. course, who is a local hero. Um, even before he became a singer, he was kind of a big guy on the street scene. He was a local boxer. And then when he uh, replaces McFadder in the dominoes, he's a big deal, but that leads to really the big break in Smokey's life. When he gets a chance to audition the Matadors for Jackie Wilson's people, for Nat Tarnapal, Jackie's manager, Alonzo Tucker, uh, Jackie's music guy, and another guy who's kind of in the background, a little quiet, just listening. Alonzo Tucker shoots him down, and this little guy turns out to be Barry Gordy, and he takes Smokey aside and is really interested in young Smokey, and obviously they go places together. Yeah. Yeah, they uh, they uh, have a little side talk, and this is sort of like, you know, th this this is kind of like the the dream to run into somebody like Barry Gordy, who was already uh, fairly established as a songwriter at this at this point, and just have somebody take you under your wing and and you know show you how to refine. Your style at that point, Smokey says he had already written about a hundred songs. Which this, I think, he underplays just how dedicated he was. Um, uh, yeah, and, and it, you know, e even these early songs like "Got a Job," it kind of sounds like he's already been doing it for a while. He would get better, but it sounds like he's already got the mojo. Definitely has the mojo, but Barry Gordy immediately tells him, you know, you're not, you don't have any structure. There's no themes here. You're just throwing rhymes at the wall. And I think even by the time Got a Job comes along, he's already been studying at the school of Barry Gordy, of, you know, the Barry Gordy Songwriting Academy, which is a hell of a university. <laughs> a, lot yeah. of people, a lot of people benefited from that. And, and 
you know, because Smokey came along when Barry was so new in his career, he'd already written a few hits for Jackie Wilson and produced them, but he really hadn't made any money yet. He was getting ripped off right and left. And, um, Smokey's there from the beginning of the formation of what becomes Motown. And the two of them have a really unique relationship. And Smokey's one of the only singer songwriters that comes out of Motown. Most of the people in Motown are producer songwriters, even somebody like Eddie Holland, who had a couple of hits as a singer it's only when he focuses on his backroom career that he becomes, you know, a third of Holland, Dozier Holland and people like, you know, Marvin Gaye got to co-write a few songs. Stevie Wonder obviously got to co-write songs, but for the most part, if you were a performer, you were kind of locked out from the songwriting. So Smokey got in early and had a special relationship with Barry Gordy. And, you know, really early on, as you mentioned with the got a job, um, scoring hits and, and, there's a great tale in there after they cut, get a job. It's out on end records. It's a hit. The check comes in. It's for $3 and 19 cents. Ouch. (laughs) (laughs) And somehow people have still had it worse. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I mean, they got a check, you know? Yeah. Better than Spotify. (laughs) Yeah. Ouch. But um, let's hear another. This isn't Smokey, actually, but this is one he wrote and produced. This is Mary Wells, who was one of the first uh, big hit female artists out of Motown. And Smokey was the auteur um, behind Mary Wells. And this is uh, The One Who Really Loves You, which is a special favorite of mine that I, that I overruled your pick on this one, Brooke. So nice. forgive me. But I had <laughs> totally to okay. I love that song. <laughs> yeah, so Mary Wells singing Smokey Robinson's The One Who Really Loves You. Mary Wells, the first queen of Motown, singing Smokey Robinson's The One Who Really Loves You, one of a string of hits uh, that Smokey cut on her, culminating with My Guy, uh, absolute stone classic mega hit um, that I figured everybody's heard My Guy, so The yeah. One Who Really Loves You is a, a little bit more of a rarity. But um, And we didn't mention that Sonny Rogers dropped out of the Matadors and was replaced by his sister, Claudette who's going to play a big role in Smokey's life, being his his first wife and the mother of his children. And also, Barry Gordy renamed the Miracles. Uh, they came in the studio as the Matadors. When they cut, got a job, Barry put his foot down and, and renamed them the Miracles. Um, and then, you know, Smokey's there at the whole time. He's one of the first six employees of Motown. You got, you got Barry Gordy, his first wife, or second wife, I think, Raynoma Barry, who is a really undersung force in, in early Motown, but she had an ugly falling out with Barry Gordy, even tried bootlegging some of his records at one point. Uh, and so things ended badly there. <laughs> Brian Holland, who goes on to become a third of Holland, Dosher Holland. Janie Bradford uh, co-wrote Money and uh, uh, several other hits. Robert Bateman, who becomes the, the uh, mad scientist, the engi- I don't know, mad, the scientist at Motown <laughs> did all the engineering stuff. And, um, 
you know, Smokey's right in that mix, and it's it's a it's a really unique atmosphere. And he's also he feels like he's adopted into the Gordy family. He's got his own extended family, but Barry is coming out of this family. The Gordys are just an exceptional family. They hard driving capitalists, but with this family ethos, they pooled their money together. Barry Gordy famously borrowed eight hundred dollars from the family fund to start Motown. His um, four sisters are all big players. Anna, who uh, had her own record label, the, the label that put out money um, and some of the early hits in that Tamil Motown family. Uh, Sister Gwen, who marries Marvin Gaye. No, Anna marries Marvin Gaye. Gwen yeah. in there. Lucy, who's the bookkeeper and becomes the second vice president after Ray Noma leaves. And then Esther, who co- co-founds the, the Motown sales force with Barney Ailis who's um, one of the first white employees at Motown and really a key factor to their success. But, you know, and then he's got three brothers that are in the mix and his dad is a big factor. So Smokey felt adopted like a second family there um, with Barry Gordy, just incredible chemistry. And he also gets through this theme that, that I've talked about with multiple people doing Motown shows, it's this mix of love and competition that really drove Motown. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think it makes so much sense that this label comes out of a a family background and a family initiative because, um, you know, there's lots of things that are out there that may or may not be true uh that that may show that they weren't always treated like family but uh the artists there were really nurtured and uh benefited from a community atmosphere uh that i think really pushed things along they didn't just you know uh diana ross and the supremes didn't have hits for a good amount of time and you know they could have been dropped from another label certainly today they might have been dropped but no they kept with it because there's something there and you're a part of the family and you know you're a friend of Smokey's so let's let's you know keep trying to find it for you boom there's like you know 12 number ones later you know yeah Absolutely. And and one thing I picked up from this book that I didn't know before was that Smokey poached one of his most important musical partners, the great guitarist Marv Tarplin, who backed Smokey and the Miracles all through his career and co-wrote a ton of Smokey's uh, most famous hits. He poached him from a, a little group called Diane Ross and the Primettes before she was Diana. And before they were the Supremes, they they uh, <laughs> you know showed off their hot guitar player in front of Smokey and and didn't get to do that again. Yeah, he, he hears them, he's like yoink. <laughs> yep, he cold swipes him. And there's another great story in there that um, before got a job hits. They had a song called Bad Girl that's that's a national hit. It's on Chess, um, so they didn't make any money on it. And they go to the Apollo. And I think raggedy is a term that Smokey used to describe their stage <laughs> act at this point. And they get there and they don't even have arrangements for the Apollo house band. But fortunately for Smokey, Ray Charles is the headliner and he steps in. Here's the kids having some trouble and steps in and, and writes an arrangement out for them right there with the house band. So uh, pretty cool stuff. And I think this is where this, late 50s early 60s motown crew 
it's still tied in with that Chitlin Circuit R&B family, that the big extended family that was such a big part of what we talked about with Etta James. And, you know, so in this book, you're, you're hearing stories about Becky Wilson, Ray Charles, uh, Jerry Butler helps Smokey out and gives him some stage tips. And, and also, as Smokey says, they caught the last, we caught the last leg of vaudeville and they got to play with people like the comedians, like Red Fox, Moms Mabley, Slappy White, Nipsey Russell. So a very different, showbiz scene than you're going to have in just 10 years would it completely transformed uh the whole uh the whole pop game and of course motown is an enormous factor in that but the big factor the big story is his relationship with claudette who's in the miracles and you know when Smokey gets hit with the asian flu apparently he claims that he was the first person in america to get that strain in i guess the late 50s um, Claudette actually sang his parts when when they went out on the road without him. So incredibly close partnership. And from the beginning, she's struggling with fertility and, and having miscarriages. And ultimately, you know, they have a pair of twins who I think live for a day. So this becomes this big undercurrent in his life, um, the Claudette's difficulties bearing children. And, and that's kind of the sort of the melancholy undertone of what's otherwise a pretty amazing success story. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, hard to put myself in those shoes, but I think you can hear it sometimes in in the music. Um, you know, uh, the the Tears songs, like um, uh, Tracks of my, my Tears and Tears of a Clown sometimes. Um, you know, he's he's sort of talking about what's what's the clown Pagliacci, yeah. Um, the uh, uh, the clown in the opera, I forget what it is, um, that uh, has a, a smile on his face as he's performing, but inside he feels completely opposite uh, from the happy person that he's claiming to be, and and you know maybe. Uh, that's how Smokey was feeling with uh, the turmoil going on uh, with uh, with Claudette trying to trying to have these kids. Yeah, that absolutely. I think that's that's I think that's right because those tear songs are a big part of the Smokey oeuvre, and I, I think you're onto something something there. But uh, but another. Uh, let's go ahead and take our sponsor break, and when we come back. We'll talk about the song that Barry Gordy insisted they re-record after it's released. So to backtrack a little bit, when they're just getting Motown off the ground, they have several hits. Uh, The Miracles have some hits. Marv Johnson has some hits. But Marv Johnson's hits, you know, Gordy has to cut deals with other record companies to get these hits distributed. And with Marv Johnson's hits, they had to actually give him up. They lost Marv Johnson to United Artists. And money is one of the first hits that they distribute and they get the money from um, Barrett Strong's hit money. And that was originally on uh, Tamla uh, or Anna, which was Barry's sister's label, but it's distributed by by Motown. But then Smokey writes a song called Shop Around that we all know, massive hit, legendary song. But it was originally going to be an album cut for Barrett Strong. And Barry Gordy said, no, 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 no. That's the song for you to sing. And when you listen to that song, Barrett Strong is clearly 
Barry Gordy knew what he was doing because that's definitely a smoky song. And Barrett's song, I think, is just too macho for that for that number. Yeah. But they do an original version. It's released. It's slow and bluesy. I don't even know how it was doing. But just a couple weeks after that, Barry Gordy calls Smokey in the middle of the night and says, get, get the miracles together. Get your ass down to the studio. We're going to re-record that song. He's got the whole band there. Everybody shows up except for piano player Barry Gordy, sits down at the keys and recut it in the version that we know that's the hit. And I think, for my money, this might be the Barry Gordy moment where this is the value add that Barry Gordy brought to the table, just that instinct to know who's the right singer for the song and what's the right arrangement for this song. And the balls to recut and re-release a song that you've already released when you've got no money and no margin for error. It's just an incredible... Uh, uh, incredible move by Barry Gordy. Yeah, Bordy, Gordy had instincts uh, that perhaps no other record man has maybe ever had. Um, and he, you can just, the continued success of Motown and the Motown brand is just, you know, uh, really, really sells that a lot. Uh, I think. Uh, he, you, you just can't give Barry Gordy enough credit for uh, popular music today. I don't know if he actually gets as much credit. I think there's a lot more underhanded stuff that gets talked about. Yeah, I think he gets taken for granted. I think, I think not only is his songwriting diminished, but the, I mean, nobody did what he did. He cultivated about half a dozen little Lennon and McCartney's right there in his own, <laughs> you know, studio. Nobody has ever done that. You know, Phil Spector was his closest competitor and maybe Phil Spector was more musically talented and maybe Phil Spector had more of a artistic vision, but nobody ever put a team together like that. And, 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 you know, ran the, the just ran the boards like Motown did. I mean, just absolutely unmatched. And Smokey Robinson is his right-hand man. And not only is he having hits as the miracle, so he's one of the first hit makers, but he's also one of the first producers. And like we talked about Mary Wells, he had hits on her with Bye Bye Baby, The One Who Really Loves You, You Beat Me to the Punch, Two Lovers, My Guy. Um, he tried with the Supremes, and that's one of the interesting things. If you ever go and listen to those early songs, that the Supremes did was Smokey behind the board. Yeah. Your heart belongs to me. Who's loving you? It's really interesting. It's not bad. No, it's not bad, but it's not, you know, what the Supremes became. It didn't hit. I kind of think it was a, a, Diana Ross and, and Mary Wells were a little bit too similar, I think. And I think that's interesting. That my theory that, that, that Smokey had a hard time separating them out and that they didn't distinguish them from the marketplace. And obviously Holland and Dozier Holland come in. And blow the doors off with that but you know um and marvin gaye's in this whole mix and and smoky has a lot of interesting stories about marvin gaye <laughs> it's <was> just <laughs> absolutely a character he called him dad that was his nickname because of the way he walked around because of his bunions <laughs> <laughs> and 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 he definitely pulls no punches because as we talked about on the marvin gray episode marvin was hell-bent on being a Frank Sinatra or Nat King Cole type standard singer and that just didn't work out for him 
you know, and, and Smokey is one of the people who steered him into a, a Motown direction. Um, although, you know, Marvin co-wrote Stubborn Kind of Fellow, his first hit and, and, you know, is as responsible for his success as anybody, but just needed to be in that context where he had room to fail and people like Smokey and Barry Gordy, um, you know, propping him up and carrying him when, when he fell and, and letting him shine when, when he sees the moment. And another kid that comes along who's actually Ronnie White of the Miracles was the guy who brought this kid in. His friend Gerald knew a kid named Stephen Morris, who was multi-talented and, and kept talking about him, brought him uh, to Smokey and Barry Gordy. And of course, Stephen Morrison becomes uh, Stevie Wonder, who's, you know, scoring number one hits by 1963. So it's just, um, it's just amazing stuff. And I, I, if I have a little bit of frustration with the book, it's that it covers the early days really well and in rich detail. But the kind of middle years kind of just zoom by. And I assume that's because that's what happened. That was Smokey's experience of it. He's busy on the road. He's touring. True. He's, you know, got his, his relationship with Claudette and their, or their attempts to have children. He's producing hits, you know, not just Mary Wells, but The Temptations um, and, you know, so many others. It's. I guess his, his, the thing is, he's like, when you when you pick up the book, and I guess if you're thinking about 1989 when Smokey Robinson is still having hits, maybe you want to pick up the book and read about Smokey Robinson. But in truth, his story is so tied to so many other people's stories. I mean, you know, you could be reading a whole chapter on, you know, just his influence on the British invasion. You know, you could... Yeah. You could be reading uh, a whole chapter on just what he wrote and produced for everybody else at uh, at Motown, um, or you could read a whole chapter on just what he did with the Temptations. Um, uh, his, what he was doing back then was remarkable, but I guess in this particular book at this particular time. Uh, if you're going to pick it up, maybe you don't want to be reading all about that. You want to know about Smokey Robinson himself and his life. Um, yeah. So I kind of get it. But, yeah, I would love to see the respect, you know, version of of this where where, you know, somebody really digs in to Smokey and uh, and shows us just how influential he was. Um, I think the the Marvin Gaye uh, wanting to sing standards thing is so interesting because it's not like uh, Smokey wasn't influenced by similar things. Like he loved Sarah Vaughn and you can definitely hear the influence in Sarah Vaughn, but perhaps you know, we think of Marvin Gaye as being the visionary, but maybe at the very beginning, it was really Barry Gordy and Smokey Robinson who were the visionaries and who understood, yes, this is where music has been, these standards, and, you know, this this is how it has been, but this is where it's going. And you can sort of take some of that stuff with you, but, you know, we're going to be putting a tight beat and, you know, tight... Uh, tight songwriting on this thing, and uh, and we're going to do something a little bit different. Yeah, absolutely. And let's go ahead and hear our next song. This is an absolutely 
emotionally overwhelming song anyway. And if you know the backstory, it's even more devastating. This is Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, More Love from And that was Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, More Love from 1966. And this was a favorite of mine. This was a song I dedicated to my wife a couple times uh, before I even knew the backstory. And the backstory is just heartbreaking. This is, yeah. uh, he wrote this after, I think Claudette had had four miscarriages and then had given birth to twins who died after one day. And this is just a man dedicating himself to his wife through all that. They've been through hell and and he's bringing more love to the table. It's just an incredibly powerful song. And, uh, you know, don't want to get verklempt here. but <laughs> <Yeah>. um. <laughs> It may be his, I, I, the man's written so many classics, but it, it might be my very favorite of his songs as like a, a written song. It's just um, uh, everything ab- about what he does so well is displayed there so well. And it also... The, the harmonies that are going on are, are really interesting. He kind of really pushed himself into a higher level uh, than he and perhaps he'd been before with that one. Yeah, it's it's a it's a real high landmark. And that 66 period is one of my favorite uh, periods of Motown. And this is absolutely one of the highlights. But I want to go back a little bit and talk about some of the stuff he did with the Temptations, because it's really remarkable. Um, not, you know, everybody knows how he. Uh, wrote and produced My Girl and and discovered, as it were, David Ruffin. David Ruffin had not been singing lead on, on, on their tracks up to that point. But he's also the guy who discovered Eddie Kendricks and brought Eddie Kendricks' uh, first hits forward. Um, you know, wrote uh, The Way You Do the Things You Do and heard that as a, a perfect song for Eddie Kendricks. So both of the early eras of The Temptations were under Smokey's wing, and Marv Tarplin is absolutely critical, especially to My Girl, uh, came up with that classic riff. And, I mean, just the mojo in the studio, because David Ruffin's vocals are so incredible. You know, and to think that he's the second-tier talent in that band for the yeah. first couple of years is just. <laughs> yeah. And something like that, I, I don't see that happening in any regular old uh, label studio environment. That sort of thing has to happen in a family environment like Motown, where someone like Smokey Robinson is really paying attention to everybody's talents and really cares to try and bring them out. Absolutely, and where they have the room to experiment. Because I see somebody like Leonard Chess would have been, shut up, what are you doing? Eddie Kendricks is a lead singer. Don't, yeah. you know, <laughs> done. Yeah. And, and and you know, Smokey had the room to experiment. And, and Sid Nathan, <laughs> no, he yeah. doesn't have time for that. <laughs> <laughs> Sid Nathan of King Records, yes. Um, oh, I hadn't thought about Sid in a while. But, you know, 
But not only does Smokey do all that with the Temptations, but then other producers get their shot. Like Norman Whitfield comes along and has yet another era with the Temptations. So that that competition, you know, is just omnipresent. And you know, Smokey didn't always have to write his own songs. Like Dozier and yeah. Holland wrote Mickey Smunky for him, and and you know, one of one of the miracles. Uh, bigger hit, you know, they have kind of a gap in their discography where they didn't have a lot of hits. And at first you're like, what happened to the miracles? And then you realize, oh, Smokey was kind of busy, you know, yeah. producing Mary Wells and the and being the vice president. <laughs> yes. And he gets promoted to vice president of the company. And, you know, it's just accomplishing so much. And, 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 you know, there's so many songs I want to play, so much ground I want to cover here. And I'm, I'm looking at the time and going, oh, my God, we got to run. But, you know, they, they tour uh, Europe. Uh, Claudette came along, a super trooper she was, like had a miscarriage and then yeah. hits the road uh, and goes to Europe because, you know, she did not want to miss that. Smokey did not want her to miss that. Um, they meet the Beatles. I always love hearing from Motown artists who meet the Beatles because they had different experiences. The Supremes infamously did not click with the Beatles, thought they were degenerates, you know, pot smokers, <laughs> and the Beatles thought they were uptight. But Smokey and the Miracles hit it off with the Beatles. And, uh, you know, Smokey says they were downright worshipful, and which they were. If, if you read any interview with Lennon and McCartney in 63, 64, they were talking up Motown and they were very hip. Uh, for Brits, they were some of the first Brits that were big into Motown, and maybe did as much to break uh, Motown in England as anybody. And you know, and I think they helped Motown in America because those press conferences that everybody and their dog were tuned into, and John Lennon's telling you his favorite songwriter in the world is Smokey Robinson. You can just hear um, millions of white kids going, "Who's Smokey Robinson? What's this Smokey Robinson about?" and you know, it's just this great synergy. And to me, the Beatles and Motown, that's the big rivalry of the 60s. And you might be right there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, and and it's not even a fair fight because it's not just Smokey going up against Lennon and McCartney. He's bringing in Holler Doge, Holland Dozier <laughs> Holland right behind him and, and, you know, Norman Whitfield and Mickey Stevenson and so many talented songwriters. And that's what, you know, the Barry Gordy secret was. And then the next story they get into that's really interesting is when Smokey played the Copacabana. And again, I always think of the Supremes at the Copacabana because they did a live album there and that was a big, you know, part of their story. But the, the but Smokey and the Miracles played the Copa too. And they end up getting a death threat while they're there. And Smokey, I think this book was written before Goodfellas even came out, but he basically describes one of those Goodfellas scenarios because the management Good of point. the Copa is like, oh, you got a death threat? We'll take care of it. <laughs> <laughs> the Goomba army uh, uh, assembles and protects the miracles. So, you know, the, the mob's not always not always a bad thing, depending on your perspective. And then there's a great story with Ed Sullivan. They get, they, they get their break to get, be on the Ed Sullivan show. And poor old Ed introduces him as Smokey Robinson and the Little Smokies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, just just a classic tale. Um, you know, any any story in there you want to throw in there that that's that's a, a favorite of yours or? Oh, that I mean, that one is is I, I'm just you know I, I think you've been in band, I've been in bands, and like oof, to have one person. Um, uh, I mean, he was the lead singer, but I don't, I don't know if he was, 
you know, uh, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles yet. But even if he was, to not get the name of the rest of the band right. Yeah, that's that's that's, uh, that's, that's brutal. Rough. Bruce Springsteen and the Little Bruces. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think that contributes. You know, one of the undercurrents of this book is the tension that Smokey has with his friends in the Miracles. And Pete yeah. Moore in particular, who's his oldest and best friend, a lot of tension develops. Smokey's making more money because he's the songwriter. And he's shared songwriting credits quite a bit, but he's still writing the bulk of the material. He's also writing all these other hits for these other groups, and he's the vice president. So Smokey's making money hand over fist, and they're not making that same kind of money. There's jealousies and tension. Ultimately, Smokey pulls away uh, from the miracles, and and you know, part of the book he does multiple farewell well tours after he's already told him to quit, and you know, waits until they get a replacement. They get a replacement, then he takes does another tour with the replacement to get him going. And this is happening in a context, you know, when uh, the Motown, the shine is off uh, at Motown, you know, Holland, Dozier Holland has left. And it's also interesting how Smokey pretty much disses Eddie Holland and blames him for that whole breakup and has nice things to say about Brian Holland uh, and Lamont Dozier, but nothing nice to say about Eddie Holland. But let's, Steph's telling me it's time to play our last song. So let's, play Smokey Robinson's Quiet Storm, a song that kicks off an entire genre of radio. Soft and warm, a quiet storm, quiet as when flowers talk at break of dawn, break of dawn. A power soul. And that was Smokey Robinson's Quiet Storm, the title song on his third solo album, which uh, was probably his biggest solo album and massively influential, creates an entire genre of radio songs. But back to the story of Motown, I mean, they've kind of lost their innocence. They've lost Holland, Dozier Holland in an ugly financial dispute. Uh, Florence Ballard has been pushed out of the Supremes and and is into a dissent uh, that ultimately results in her death. Paul Williams of the Temptations is on a downward spiral, commits suicide in 1973. David Ruffin, who quits The Temptations and then goes down in another uh, spiral. Smokey's nephew, Tyrone, who was very close to his own age, basically his brother, committed suicide around this time. So it's a really hard time. Um, you know, Marvin Gaye famously suffers a, a big loss, uh, and I'm blanking on the name of his songwriting partner, uh, not songwriting partner, his duet partner, who oh, passed away. Uh, Tammy and Terrell, yeah. Tammy Terrell, yeah, uh, who, you know, passed away. And Marvin Gaye, you know, kind of goes into retreat and emerges with what's going on a couple years later, where Smokey um, takes even longer. He's he's kind of trapped in, in with the miracles. Barry Gordy goes to L.A. and is moving more and more of the operation of Motown to L.A. from Detroit. Smokey's resisting that. The one good bit of news that's happened in this period is Smokey and Claudette meet this guy, Dr. Throckmorton, who first hooks him up with a surrogate mother. And what Smokey claims is one of the first surrogate mother ever, where they take a fertilized egg from Claudette and put it in another woman who successfully gives birth to their first child. And for their second child, he installs this uterine brace um, 
and that 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 prevents the problem that had caused all those miscarriages. And then from his deathbed, this Dr. Throckmorton cat manages, you know, coaches the C-section uh, to, to deal with this special equipment. And, and that's a result uh, results in Smokey's second surviving child. So, Jeez. yeah, uh, some pretty heavy stuff. Uh, but then finally moves to L.A. He's a big supporter of Marvin Gaye, helps win the fight with Barry Gordy to get what's going on out, which, you know, that creates the space for Motown artists to be kind of auteurs. Stevie Wonder takes that and runs with it. And Smokey, on his third album, Quiet Storm, which he co-wrote with his sister Rosella, um, you know, that's his big moment. Thoughts on Quiet Storm and that whole? Well, you know, it just as an album, it's really a great album. And the song Quiet Storm is is a, a great uh a great song. I think Smokey found his way of, you know, stretching out and, and pushing himself and you can hear it throughout the album, but it's not the same as, you know, these big bombastic things. Like he never is going to, Smokey's never going to put out an album called songs in the key of life, you know, (laughs) (laughs) he's not going to do that, but in, in his own ways, uh, it, it really is a remarkable album after he's already had such a remarkable career. Um, but that uh, that album and the song just like spurred on this whole thing, which is like uh, I, I need soft rock, but better. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's a lady named Kathy Hughes, who is now the second richest uh, black woman in America, who started the Quiet Storm format based on that song. And that was the theme song for it at Howard University. And um, yeah, now now it's all over the place. And it's probably responsible for the success of, you know, the Luther Vandrosses and, and Freddie Jackson's and Vanessa Williams and, uh, um, you know, just to, uh, tons and tons of uh, of R&B groups in the 80s and, and into the 90s. Yeah, Keith Sweat and R. Kelly, I think, are their whole career. I held D'Angelo might. Uh, yeah, you could, you know, you could fit uh, them in there. Yeah. You know, all the way into the 2000s with the Neo Soul, you know, Erica Badu and all that, you know, that space that Smokey, and it wasn't that Smokey created the radio format, but he created the music that the radio format was built around. I mean, she used Quiet Storm as a theme song. It's called the Quiet Storm format. So massively influential and really pretty unique in pop music history for somebody who's already a first ballot Hall of Famer for what he did in the early and mid 60s with Motown. I mean, he's a Hall of Famer as a performer. Yeah. Another Hall of Fame citation as as a producer and songwriter and, you know, undersung as a businessman, key part of the Motown business um, success and team there. And then to go on and have the second act or third act or fourth act of his career just incredible stuff. I mean, I, I don't think you can undersell the accomplishments of Smokey Robinson. And I think he does kind of get overlooked sometimes because Barry Gordy yeah. uh, casts such a big shadow. And and I think also because he's clearly one of Barry Gordy's favorites. 
and he never had a big falling out with Barry Gordy. You know, Diana Ross had a big falling out with him. Marvin Gaye ended up leaving the label. Holland Osher Holland infamously left the label to the tune of many lawsuits in, in the 60s. But Smokey and Barry, as far as I know, are still tied to this day. You know, to just to, this day, yeah. Yeah. I think that's it. But also, Smokey's, uh, most of his biggest triumphs came in a more collaborative era when it wasn't just about the one artist and how genius the one artist is. Um, you know, in the 70s, it became about Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder. But in the 60s, it was about Motown. And he was a, he was a big part of the Motown engine. Um, so he, he sort of thrived in, in collaboration and, um, you know, being with his, his uh, partners in, in his group, with, you know, along with his wife. Um, so he's he's not going to get that same thing. And and the other thing is that even even Quiet Storm is not like an art album with a capital A, the way that, say, What's Going On is or, uh, you know, Talking Book is or, or something like that. Yeah. Um, Although I'd argue Sergeant it's Pepper. Yeah, yeah. No, I'd argue it's even better than What's Going On, though. Yeah, that, I like I, I I would I would not disagree. <laughs> <laughs> so if anybody's listened this far, we just dropped a bomb. I want to end this with a little quote of Smokey talking about Motown, because uh, it's one of the best summaries of what Motown was all about I've ever read. This is from page one hundred nineteen of the book. This is, he says the Motown sound was a miracle. It spoke for, it was born from, a special time and place, Detroit, Michigan in the 60s. It was a combination of an astonishing range of talents, politics, and personalities, people who were naive, happy, hungry for money, looking to be loved and accepted, dying to compete, burning with ambition, blazing with talent, first raw, then refined, and finally irresistible. It was black music too damn good, too accessible, too danceable, too romantic, too real, not to be loved by everyone. And that that is a heck of an epitaph for a heck of an accomplishment. That's um, it. That's Smokey Robinson. So Brooks, always a delight, and look forward to uh, talking about somebody who's not as lovable next time. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry Wexler, a man go. of many accomplishments, who's also kind of the villain in many stories. So I'm looking forward <laughs> to that one. Yeah, that'll be fun. <laughs> Indeed. Thanks much. Yeah, this is great. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate welcomes Madeline Bocaro to discuss her book on the art and music of Yoko Ono. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. <laughs>